You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Judas and the Black Messiah. Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Repeat after me. impersonating a federal officer or you can go home the black badges are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color their aim is to sow hatred and inspire terror I will learn all that I can I will learn. these ain't no terrorists you can murder a liberator but you can't murder liberation you can murder a revolutionary but you can't murder a revolution and you can murder Alright everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for Judas and the Black Messiah, and the story is as follows. Offered a plea by the FBI, William O'Neill infiltrates the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party to gather intelligence on Chairman Fred Hampton. The film is starring Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, Jesse Plemons, Dominique Fishback, Lil Ray Howery, and Martin Sheen. It is written and directed by Shaka King and co-written by Will Burson. Here to join me for this podcast review, I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. Tom O'Brien. Hey, everybody. Cody Derricks. Hi. And Dan Bear. I am a revolutionary. Yeah, were you out in the streets this past summer? I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very, very, very highly anticipated film for all of us here at NBP. When that trailer dropped for this movie, it dropped like an atomic bomb. I think collectively, if you ask most of us here at Next Best Picture, we will all tell you that the trailer for Judas and the Black Messiah was not only maybe the best trailer of 2020, but also was the trailer that got us most excited to see any movie in 2020. And we went through this really weird period where we didn't know when this movie was coming out, if it was coming out, what were, what were they going to do? My hunch was always that Warner Brothers would release it during Black History Month. And I was right. Now, the one part of it that, you know, we were all debating about was whether or not if it was going to get a theatrical release. Due to the deal between Warner Brothers, HBO Max, and releasing everything theatrically and streaming simultaneously, it is now available for everyone to watch both in select theaters, if it's safe, and also on HBO Max. So, we finally have Judas and the Black Messiah. It feels like it's a long time coming. <laughs> I feel like we've been talking about this movie for months and we have been it's been like six months i believe since that trailer dropped yeah in august so after much anticipation after considering all of its oscar prospects we've all now seen the movie it's time to finally talk about it passing it over to chicago native first josh parham josh what did you think of judas and the black messiah so i really ended up liking this movie um I do think that it's not perfect. I'm going to say that right up front. And I think most of my issues probably lie within the screenplay to this film. I think it is kind of a bit messy and disorganized at times. And that was the biggest barrier I found to me, like fully embracing this movie. But at the core of what we have here is still a pretty engaging story. And particularly putting a spotlight on this very energizing character that I think the movie treats with the appropriate amount of reverence and respect for, but does try to give as much of a full portrait of him as possible. And I think that you get that not only from the filmmaking, but also from Kaluuya's performance as Fred Hampton, who is, I mean, by far, to me, is just 
one of the best things about this movie. Like his performance is so magnetic that it's hard to just look away from him. Uh, but Lakeith Stanfield is also really great too. I think that that's actually a underappreciated performance. I think for most people. Um, so like I said, I don't think the movie is perfect. It is a bit messy at times, but when you're looking at the whole package, I think that this is a pretty riveting movie to watch from beginning to end. All righty. Tossing it over now to Cody Derricks, another person from the Chicago area. <laughs> Cody, what did you think of Judas and the Black Messiah? So I was lucky enough to get to see this at the Sundance premiere uh, about a week and a half ago or so. Um, and yeah, I, I got to agree with Josh's assessment of it being really riveting. Um, it's a invigorating and appropriately upsetting movie, if that makes sense. You know, this is not... This isn't Forrest Gump history lesson. This is, you know, this is a movie with a sad ending and you go into it knowing that. And the fact that we are a lot of us, you know, especially in white America, are learning about this type of story for the first time nearly 50 years later, I think, proves its necessity. But at the same time, it's not just a story meant to educate. It also, you know, is engrossing for people who, you know, do know this story that is part of, you know, their history. Um I totally agree with Kaluuya being a standout, but I've got to say, I think I was even more impressed with Lakeith Stanfield. I mean, we all know he's been one of the more exciting actors to watch across the past, like, what, six or seven years or so? Uh, and it's the kind of performance that really impresses because he's playing a character within a character. You know, the person that he's playing is himself performing. And you have to believe all aspects of it, or else the story would just completely fall apart. And he totally sells it. He He really was the standout of the movie for me. Okay. Tom O'Brien. Well, I hop on the uh, Lakeith Stanfield train as well. That is a tough, tough part because unlike uh, the character of Fred Hampton, who's given a romantic angle and an interactive angle with all kinds of folks, um, Bill O'Neill is very solitary. He is within himself and he knows what he has to do and he really can't reveal himself to anybody except uh, his FBI handler. I have to say that when I saw first saw the trailer, I joined everybody and it's like, whoa, where was this all my life? This was, I because to be honest, uh, Judas was not on my radar at all in the summertime. And, um, and I know we've all been let down by fantastic trailers and the movies turn out to be uh, just a highlight reel of what we've already seen in the trailer. Not here. There's a dynamism to the filmmaking, and uh, Shaka King is very uh, was not on my radar either. And boy, he's got the chops in terms of directing a, uh, a movie that jumps. It's enormously entertaining, even with the sense of foreboding that you know how it's going to end. You know, in Titanic, we know the ship was going to sink. I mean, this title is literally the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. <laughs> <laughs> you know. There's no if you've been living under a rock for however many hundreds of years and you don't know the story of Judas and Jesus. Well, then I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> That's then well, but uh, it, it's it's remarkable how entertaining this is. This is a real movie movie uh, and uh, for a film about very, very specific political ideas. Um, that balance between being entertaining and being enlightening is uh, really one of the most uh, fascinating things about it. And I really can't wait to see it again. All right. And last but not least, Dan Baer. Yeah, I think the thing that I'm most taking away from this is what Tom just said. This is a real movie movie. It is just firing on all cylinders in terms of its visual storytelling and how it moves uh, for the most part. Um, I think that my my issues with it are mostly screenplay based and mm -hmm. mostly just like honestly kind of nitpicks in that, you know, being my this is a really important movie about something that is uh, that most people do not know about. And I just feel like it does not go quite far enough in terms of saying like how radical Fred Hampton really was. I mean, you, you can't tell a story about him and leave socialism completely out of it. But I think this really undersells how much of a firebrand he was in terms of that specific thing. And he almost be 
they they almost water him down to the point where he's just just a figurehead. Um, they they don't do it fully, but yeah. To students of history, you may watch this going like Fred Hampton was uh, a bit more than what this movie is trying to say. But that said, this is super duper entertaining. Um, it's extremely well shot. Sean Bobbitt is doing just incredible things with that camera. Um, and Daniel Kaluuya, who <laughs> is, is, I would say, slightly miscast. Oh! And again, just because of the whole, like, history, Fred Hampton was in his, had just turned 20 when all this happened. And... Daniel Kaluuya is fantastic, amazing, and a, a, a person to behold, even when he is not in this role. But, like, he don't look like he's 20. So you prefer the Kelvin Harrison Jr. style of casting is what you're telling me. Yes. However, <laughs> like, there is no denying that he is just straight fire in this performance. I mean, it is – he is so magnetic and so forceful that I, I ha- that you know anything saying anything negative about it just feels really really churlish, and yeah, I mean Lakeith Stanfield. If it weren't for the fact that <laughs> Daniel Kaluuya is so magnetic, Lakeith Stanfield would be walking away with this movie because that is a fantastic performance of as written an incredibly complex character and i love that the writing really does give even a bit more weight to o'neill's side of the story than hampton's because i think he he is a fascinating character and what the movie has to say about his character is also really interesting um and I think he's great. And I'm surprised that we've got this far and no one has really mentioned Dominique Fishback, who is another one that is just like, you cannot look away from her when she's on screen. Um, she has such a presence about her and really loved her. But yeah, the the movie is, <laughs> it's great for something that is grappling so nakedly with politics and political movement and doesn't really have to strain for relevancy compared to what's happening in the world today. It's super entertaining in all of that. And wow. Okay. So I think my big thing with this movie is that one, I really, really like it a lot. That's number one. I'll get that right off the bat. Number two is that I do have nitpicks with it. Uh, The nitpicks are very, very minor. And I kind of want to get those out of the way first because they're so minor. So I'll just come right out and say it. I do not like the music in this movie, like at all. And I honestly think that there are times where the music robs the movie of more of an emotional gut punch that it probably could have had. There were times while I was watching this and I thought, man, the music should be like so much more tense right now for the way that these scenes are playing out with whether or not if, you know, William uh, O'Neill is going to be found out or not. There were also scenes where there was this incredible sense of melancholy and sadness because we know of the inevitable end of Fred Hampton and we know what's coming. The movie obviously spoils it, like I said before, in its own title. So I was wondering why the music wasn't going that route. Instead, the music just like kind of at times didn't feel like it was fitting with the movie at all. Uh, And that for me was like the biggest drawback. Did anyone else feel the same way? I got that sense really only one time, though, which is when the Black Panthers go to meet with the crowns. Oh, and like the plucking bass during that yeah, scene? I, yeah. Oof, yeah. That was the only time where I found the music, like, didn't really fit for me. Um, otherwise, I don't know. I I didn't mind it so much. Uh, it feels mostly background to me. It doesn't really put itself in the forefront is one of the things that I really think about that much with the movie. But I can agree with you that there are some moments here or there where I think that the music has a nice sound to it, but maybe isn't totally working with the imagery on screen. I felt exactly the same as, as Josh did. It, it's not bad music, but it always it doesn't always work that well in context. My other uh, nitpick here is... <laughs> Was Robert du- Duvall like not available 
and that's why they got Martin Sheen? Or was he afraid of being typecast after his role in Widows? Like, <laughs> I, I, I was just like so... <laughs> you can't look at Martin Sheen in that makeup and not think Robert Duvall. Am I right? Yeah. Wait, he was wearing makeup? <laughs> <laughs> now, it's funny because like Martin Sheen in this is, um, you know the one member of the cast who doesn't really get much to do in my opinion um except for maybe one scene with uh, between him and Jesse Plemons that I found to be quite riveting but I put that mostly on Jesse Plemons I just found Martin Sheen to just be distractingly awful in this and that's not usually a term that I use to describe Martin Sheen but it was more so not him but like the utilization of him and you know it's funny because this movie at times reminded me of The Departed, and a lot of that had to do with, obviously, uh, Lakeith Stanfield's character being this undercover, uh, you know, a person that's trying to infiltrate a group and, you know, reporting back to the other side, and the other side happens to have Martin Sheen on it, <laughs> you know? So I, I, I was reminded a lot of times of, like, The Departed while watching it, and uh, there were certain things that that movie, I thought, did much, much better than this one did. Um, but one of those areas where, um, it did not falter and it actually was able to rise to the occasion. I know it's been echoed a couple of times by other people here so far is the desperation, the anxiety, the fear, and the small pockets of humanity that Lakeith Stanfield finds in this character who we really should not be rooting for at all. But Lakeith is so good. He's so compelling in how he portrays um, this very duplicitous character that you you kind of are like like you are rooting for him. You're not rooting for him. You just kind of want to see him get out of it somehow. I think that's what we're rooting for. We're not rooting for him to succeed in betraying Fred Hampton. We're rooting for him to find a way out if he can. And I think that that's kind of incredible. You know, when I compare that to someone like say. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio's performance in The Departed and capturing like that same level of fear, anxiety, desperation, exhaustion that comes with living this double life. Yeah. And the crazy thing about his character is that he's a portrayal of a type of person that you don't see a lot in uh, political historical movies. And that's the people who are more apathetic, which you got to figure is probably the vast majority of any type of person. Um, you know, he starts the movie pretending to be a uh, FBI agent just to steal a car. And it, it turns out that's his grift. And then he's set up as this perfect mole because he shows, at least uh, he says as much, that he's you know completely, for the most part, apathetic to the current civil rights struggle going on at the time. And you don't see that a lot. And I think it's important to you know include those types of characters to not have an entire people be looked at as a monolith. Well, there's a lot of people out there that don't give a shit about politics, you know? Right. They, they maybe know the difference between right and wrong, maybe, but, like, yeah, they, they just completely tune out what's happening in the real world. They're more content with sitting around and playing their Xbox than they are with, you know, figuring out real-world issues, you know? I mean... Well, it also is about, you know, his character has been oppressed, even if he isn't expressing as much, but he is more focused on how he can individually navigate that rather than looking for systemic change. What does he say? He says badge is scarier than the gun, right? And like he's utilizing it to his own advantage to get what he wants, which is, you know, stealing these cars and such. Yep. But man, when they knock off his hat and like, one guy's like, man, he's just a kid. I, I have to admit the whole like age difference uh, of like Lakeith and Daniel Kaluuya having to play like these young 20 year olds. I, I, uh, I roll my eyes a little bit at it. Uh, but at the same time, I think the performances are so good that um, that's a nitpick that I was able to qu uh, to really quickly kind of brush under the rug. Yeah, I I do agree that I think that those performances do a lot of heavy lifting in this movie. And, you know, I saw this film a second time uh, when it dropped. And I have to admit that I do really think that Lakeith Stanfield, his performance did rise a lot in my opinion because for all the reasons that have been stated that is a very complicated character to portray and there are so many scenes where you get that conflicting nature within himself where you're right that it's not necessarily that we want to root for him in terms of succeeding we just are so we are really empathetic towards him even though we don't always agree with 
his methods or his logic and reasoning. And when you can create that sense of empathy from your performance, that is an incredible job. And I've always found that to be a strength of of his acting and and almost every character that he portrays. And I think that he really deserves a lot of credit for what he brings to this movie and in this role. Yeah, he is uh, really gets to the heart of Bill O'Neill being lonely. He is Bill O'Neill is an island in this. He can't confide in anyone. He doesn't have the kind of personal life that, say, uh, Hampton does. And uh, that aching kind of, I don't want to oversell it, but but you do look at Stanfield in this, and then you realize he, the character recognizes that he really has no friends. Yeah. That really tore at me. I wish that they had portrayed that maybe a little bit more. Uh, the adoration and love that Fred Hampton has and the isolation that o- O'Neill is feeling. I kind of wish that they, you know, were able to highlight that. There's actually a good, I think, maybe 15 minutes worth of more material that could have actually been crammed into this movie just to give it a little bit more punch. Uh, because I think it's very, very bare bones, stripped down. It's very economic in its storytelling. And, I, and, and while I do appreciate that, I don't know if any of you felt the same way, but it felt like to me there was something missing, some just one little thing to push it over the edge. And I I initially thought it was the music because music can just go a long way in elevating uh, a cinematic experience. But I don't know. After watching, I've seen it now three times. After watching it a third time, I, I really think there might be other scenes of character development, something that is just lacking in this. And I don't know. I don't know where to lay the blame at that, but do you guys agree with me that this movie is missing something? Well, I said at the top that my big issue with this movie is in its screenplay, and I think a part of that is sort of missing some details on some of the other like characters that are surrounding the the kind of main group. I do think that there's attempts to give these like emotional arcs to some of these side characters that we don't really know that much about. So that's kind of one issue that I have. And then I also think that just structurally, the thing feels a bit messy to me. I think that it tries to juggle the Bill O'Neill and Fred Hampton storylines in a way that doesn't really mesh all that well together for me. And it, it creates this structure that's like, the pacing feels odd at times and it's hard for me to get fully enveloped in the complete story because it feels like the focus of the actual narrative is kind of all over the place for me. And despite the filmmaking and the performances being really good, I always came back to the script feeling like it didn't know like exactly the path it wanted to go down. And it started to tell like all of these like parts of these different stories without ever having it all come together in a, truly satisfying way for me. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, Josh on that, especially the, I, I think what's missing for me is the lack of establishment of those side characters, because there are a couple of subplots in here that are given a lot of screen time, but it's, you know, it's like, wait, who is this person again? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's just, it, it, there's just a little bit too much of irrelevant things and not enough of what we really need. I do like the bookend with the Eyes on the Prize 2 documentary at the very beginning with Lakeith Stanfield sitting in for the real life William O'Neill and then at the end seeing the real life William O'Neill. So I really like the recreation of that footage in the beginning and then showing the real footage at the end. And it's very interesting to me because I was expecting, once again, to be hit in the gut so hard during the climactic uh, raid scene that I was kind of empty and hollow during it. I didn't really feel as much as I wanted to feel, but the text at the end of the movie, holy crap, I have not been hit that hard by text at the end of a movie in a very, very long time. That was what brought it all full circle for me, and that's what kind of, I think was able to deliver the emotional power of this movie that I was searching for uh, through its messy structure at times, as you were mentioning, Josh. To me, like, the final text brought it all together. Yeah. I I mean, like, people were talking about how this movie hits really, really hard and how this is a 
you know, I wouldn't say like a depressing watch, but it's an enraging one and one that also can be very empowering at times, especially given our current climate and what we went through over the last summer. You know, Fred Hampton talks a lot about how he is, you know, um, a, a, a man for the people, but yet the revolution is all about the people. Like, it's not necessarily about him. Like, he works for the people. And being a part of like this rainbow coalition of oppressed people of all races and all kinds all over. When you see the organization that took place over the summer in the wake of George Floyd's murder and how it wasn't just black people taken to the streets calling for change and revolution, but it was literally everyone of all types uh, from all over the world, even not even just the United States. But we saw this complete uprising like from everywhere you turned. I think that also helps tremendously with the message of this movie and what Fred Hampton was uh, speaking to uh, during this time period. And I think that also helps to give the movie its emotional power. Yeah, the journey that you see uh, Fred Hampton go through in this movie, just in terms of fighting for these truths that he believes in and wants to bring to his community and to his people, like that obviously has, sadly, connections to today and it's tragic that we're still having this conversation but uh definitely within the film you really get that urgency and that uh fire that he brings to it i will also say that you do probably get the sense that you can tell this is an attempt to tell his story within the studio system and i think in doing so by trying to be a rather you know glossy warner brothers movie and, and Dan mentioned this already, that there is a sense that some of those edges do probably get smoothed down a bit and you don't get the full portrait of like how radical he was. And not that that's a bad thing, that, that his radicalization is bad, but just that as him as a person and his place in history does feel a little – it does feel slightly opaque in this version, I will say. It doesn't mean that – I'm not still engaged by the movie, but I do think that there is something to the storytelling that probably pulls his characterization back a little bit for a, a slightly more mass appeal. That That is the thing that gets me. And I think that the um, in terms of how that affects the movie, um, there is a sense, you know, when um, Martin Sheen's J. Edgar Hoover is, you know, saying we have to, this guy is a, a force and he's a menace and we have to, you know, do everything we can to put him away. And you see him and it, you see him in action and it's really a question of like, really? Like, this cannot be the most radical man in America. Yeah, he gives one speech <laughs> really about, yeah, about killing cops and, and also like the, the whole stuff with J. Edgar Hoover, I felt was completely unnecessary because it's like we know the FBI is supposed to be terrible. Like we don't need mustache twirling villains in this part of the movie. I, <laughs> I felt that was kind of unnecessary to me. And I think that's another example of the movie kind of being engineered for a wider audience that might need those kinds of scenes. But I think it sort of dilutes the more powerful story they could be telling about a person who maybe you didn't agree with all the time, but had these really strict, strong convictions and made him a more, I think actually would have made him a more engaging character than what we are presented here. It's yeah, funny that you mentioned that it's implied that, you know, the FBI are bad guys. Um, because the funny thing is, one of the criticisms I've seen about this movie going around is that it doesn't do enough to paint the FBI as being a you know, an institution that was going after radicals like this and people just mm. looking for justice and that it, there's, there's people saying that it kind of makes it look like it's a more of an individual action. Oh no. yeah. Which I, I, I know I just, I mean, it's Jager with, Hoover. Especially, exactly. he's giving an entire presentation to a bunch of people in the opening scene <laughs> right. of the movie. <laughs> right. It looks like something out of triumph of the will. Like, I mean, it's not yeah. very subtle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can understand that criticism if you're talking sort of just about like, the Jesse Plemons character, like if he was the only um, thing that you got to see, I could sort of understand that to a point, but I I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm also just bringing my own sense to it that like every time the FBI shows up in one of these types of movies that maybe I'm just implicitly coming with the understanding that it is the institution and yeah. maybe other people just aren't reading into that like I am. 
you know, I mean, that's I a way, like FBI bad in this type of movie. Like that's just a given. Yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, the funny thing is like, that's, you know, I can speak for, I'm sure a lot of white Americans who like not to, you know, pivot this movie to being only educational, but that's, you know, not how I was raised. <laughs> and like, it, <laughs> it, it, similarly, you know, I was, I was, you know, not to throw my education under the bus, but a lot of the rhetoric around the black Panthers uh, in my education was that they are, they were kind of a, you know, black version of the KKK, like that it was just a hate group. And so I think that's where this movie and like other pieces of media like it really are essential. And again, you know, it's taken half a century to get here on the mainstream. But I think that's also why I'm kind of amazed that this is a Warner Brothers movie. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. We talked about the apathy uh, earlier of the William O'Neill character. And I find that scene with Jesse Plemons and Martin Sheen to be so incredibly fascinating for um, the Jesse Plemons character because it feels like the movie attempts to portray um, his uh, special agent Mitchell as one who is doing his job. But when it comes time to cross a line, when it goes time to go beyond putting someone in prison and actually committing murder... The movie's asking us to have a degree of empathy through that scene with him because you can tell that the movie's trying to portray that there is conflict within him, but he also still carries out his job and what he's tasked to do, as does William O'Neill. So the movie doesn't try at that point to have us, you know, gain sympathy for them because they they both did what they did. But what did you guys think of the inclusion of that scene and highlighting uh, Special Agent Mitchell in that one moment. Did you guys feel like it was almost a, a all sides, quote unquote, like kind of attempt by the movie? <laughs> oh, yeah. I am so glad you brought up this scene <laughs> um, because I'm very conflicted about it because it is a great scene for Jesse Plemons. Right. He's really good in it. He's he's fantastic. But also how we were talking about how the script um, kind of focuses on one too many story threads. I, I don't think the movie needed that scene. Ooh, but you know, uh, what? I, it, it, which it pains me because it's so good, but like give that scene, like give the time spent in that scene to further developing, um, Fred's, uh, position in the community or further detailing the differences between um, the Black Panthers and the crowns or other groups, like give that scene to any of the other story threads. And I think that time would be better spent. I, what I liked about the scene and I'm glad it's there was the moment when Hoover starts inquiring about uh, uh, Roy Mitchell's family Mm -hmm. And he knows the children's names and how they are doing. And that you see on Plemons' face that moment, all of a sudden now the reach of the FBI is reaching into those he loves. Right. And that gave me a real chill. Totally. I I, I think in that regard, that's what the scene is going for. But once again, I think what this is all kind of tying back to is something that we've said before, which is that the movie is lacking a strong thorough line. Because it's attempting to do so much. I mean, credit to Dominique Fishback, who is saddled with a role that, you know, I think could have been so much more multi-layered. And her performance is so good in it that she's able to rise above what she's given and elevate the material and be like the beating heart of this movie. I I, I have to agree. You know, it was interesting because like earlier I said, I don't know what that quote unquote something is. But the more I think about it, I think it is the screenplays kind of uh, what's what I'm looking for here. It's just a little all over the place with its focus. It's a little sprawling at times. It it, Mm -hmm. it almost feels like this was a miniseries cut down to a two hour movie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. You can see that. Sure. Another thing, too, I want to say just in terms of like how great the cast is, though, is I know that we talked a lot about Stanfield. We just talked mentioned Plemons. I, I really, really, really do want to focus on Kaluuya for a moment here because this is like the kind of performance that reminded me and maybe because I just watched it so recently. But like Denzel Washington and Malcolm X, you know, when he's delivering some of those speeches in that movie, I mean, 
the first thing that Fred Hampton says here is he says, I don't need no mic. Can you all hear me? And it's like, yeah, we can we can hear you loud and clear, <laughs> you know, because like he is just so damn riveting in the speeches that he delivers in this movie. But it's not just those moments that I think, you know, obviously the trailers and other people will be talking about. But it, but it is also these quieter, more intimate moments where you really get the sense that he is fully embodying this character. And it's a real transformative performance from physicality, the way that he carries himself to the mannerisms, to uh, the voice inflection, the speech pattern. I mean, you watch him in not even just Get Out or Queen and Slim Widows, but then also compare that to how Daniel Kaluuya is in real life. And this is a truly gifted amazing actor and I think that's where maybe my Denzel Washington comparison comes into play here which is that it's unbelievable the talent that we are seeing before our eyes right now and he is still so young and has so much more left to give us I feel you've watched them in unforgettable adventures love affairs and tragedies now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories from the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. And Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. I can't think of an actor working today who is in better control of his eyes. Um, eyes are important. That's the dumbest thing I've ever said in my life. But like for, you know, for an actor, it's truly, not to sound cliche, but it's the window to the soul. And he is able to take them from, you know, fearful and get out to menacing in widows to powerful in this. And it really just imbues him with a sense of personality. And he's just, it's just an example of how fully in control he is of all his performances. Not to mention, he's constantly doing accent work. I don't think I've ever heard him actually do his actual voice in a movie. <laughs> nope. That's true. That's very, very true. And I agree with you, Matt, that I think that the moments where he is quieter are almost to me more impressive than his big fiery speeches because you get to really see how charismatic that character is and how much he connects with people and brings them into the his own fight and, and the struggle that he is uh, you know, valiantly trying to win. And those moments to me are actually even more impactful because it shows you that he can kind of come down to people's level and connect with them on an emotional way. And a lot of times that's more impressive than just giving a big speech. And it just is more evidence of how much of a great actor Kaluuya is. And as we have noted in all of these various roles, they seem so different from each other. But I think at the core is he's really able to tap into what makes these characters interesting and engaging and communicate that not only to like the audience, but the other people in the movie as well. Yeah. What I was really impressed with were the scenes where Kaluuya's Hampton has to let his guard down to open up his life to Deborah. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, there is the, all of a sudden the very scary responsibilities of being a father uh, that it really kind of, I, I, I felt terrified him at times, uh, as opposed to the big rousing, big icon that he's become in the community. In, the, in those scenes with Fishback, he's just a man and just a dad, uh, upcoming dad. And it, would just, it just brought me even closer to the character. 
Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think there's a great deal of pathos and humanity that he brings to those scenes. And, you know, Dominique Fishback, as we said before, is just no slouch either. She's able to, I think, really match him quite well in their one-on-one scenes together. And, you know, I was really, really increasingly worried that she was going to be uh, maybe smothered by how towering his performance uh, was. But he was able to bring it down a bit and to like Josh said before he was more impressed in those moments where he was able to bring it down a bit and I think that matching that with what Dominique Fishback was delivering here which is also um quite powerful I really wish she got more uh that's my one uh, never little nitpick is I really wish that she got a little bit more in this movie to do uh, but for what she has, I mean, her her final close up in the movie is just mm, earth shattering. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's great. Mm-hmm. Beautifully done. So uh, what do we think of the technicals? I know we mentioned a little bit before uh, someone mentioned Sean Bobbitt's camera work. Um, I brought up the score. Was there anything else on a technical front craft wise that anybody wanted to bring up? I was impressed with the production design. Mm. It really felt like Chicago. You know, as as uh, in a particular period, you know, between the you know graffiti's on the walls and the and the uh, uh, just the uh, uh, offices, it, there's a certain uh, threadbare quality to the Panther office. But when they rebuild it, it's it's vibrant and it, they make it better. And I thought that uh, that spoke a lot to um, the commitment that the Panthers had to becoming a force in the community. Yeah. Agreed about the production design. I, there's something about specific Chicago apartments that just have a very distinct, but kind of hard to pin down look. And specifically, this is really very finite, but the, the, quality of wood that is used on doors and paneling in Chicago is very specific and this movie gets it perfectly. Mm-hmm. Anybody who lives in Chicago knows what I'm talking about. Damn. Yeah, it's a very specific look that they do a fine job at uh, getting down in this movie. I also want to just uh, shout out one more time uh, that I really like Sean Bobbitt's work in this movie a lot. Yeah. And I say this like with complete complete, complete, complete enthusiasm that one day hopefully he'll get an Oscar nomination (laughs) because I think he's so underappreciated. I mean, it is just so strikingly smooth, vibrant. The contrast is creating these really, really harsh shadows at times, but the whites are also incredibly blown out in certain moments. Um, It looks really sleek and great. And I know it's a studio movie at the end of the day, but uh, I it's it's an unsung quality that I think that he delivers to every movie that he shoots. And I don't think he gets the praise that he deserves. Well, and the other thing that Sean Bobbitt also deserves credit on is that he actually knows how to properly shoot black actors, which is something that a lot yep. of even really great cinematographers do not know how to light properly to expose the image for black actors and Sean Bobbitt is somebody that understands that. And so that alone he deserves credit for, because I've seen Oscar winning cinematographers fail at that. And he does a great job at it. All right. So for final thoughts on Judas and the black Messiah, tossing it over first to Cody Derricks. I don't have much more to add. Again, I want to echo Lakeith Stanfield being my standout. Dale Cooley is obviously great. I'm only centering him in my, uh, critiques of the movie because I feel like he's getting all the awards buzz and stuff. So I kind of want to just toss a bone to Lakeith because yeah, this is an actor on the rise and I'm, I mean, he's been rising for the better part of a decade and I'm just really excited to see where he goes next. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. It feels like there's always this one role for Lakeith that when we see it on paper, we're like, this is going to be the one, this is the one, this, this is going to be the one that's going to catapult him to the next level. And then it's like something like Sorry to Bother You, where it doesn't get like widely seen or here he's being overshadowed by Kaluuya. And it's like, Lakeith, your time is coming. I promise you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Dan Baer. Uh, Yeah, it's I got to say there is something to be said for movies ending on their best scene. And that raid of uh, Hampton's apartment is really fantastic. Um, it's maybe the best 15 minutes or so of any movie I 
saw in 2020, uh, certainly in contention for it anyway. Um, it's fantastic. And I think I've said everything else that I would want to say about it, but I did want to point out that that sequence, the the sound work, the editing, cinematography, it's just, it is a perfect thriller sequence. Okay. Tom O'Brien. I'd like to just do a little sidebar. If you're if you're intrigued by what you see here in Judas and the Black Messiah, um, there is a very good piece of docu journalism from 1971 called "The Murder of Fred Hampton." You can you can rent it. Yes, I think Amazon Prime has it for two bucks. I, this this particular documentary, the filmmakers went into the apartment after the raid and photographed it all as is. It was totally unsecured. They just waltzed right in and got this amazing footage, and it was later used to um, challenge news reports and the police version of things. And it uh, uh, it just, it's it's so interesting to see how the real sets, the, the real uh, life places and uh, how it really happened. Uh, so, I mean, if you're intrigued by it, there's more to come. Uh, the murder of Fred Hampton. Nice. Really, really nice. Josh Parham? Uh, two quick things that I want to mention. Uh, the first is going back to Dominique Fishback, which I agree with you, Matt, that I think that on the page, that character really is nothing more than a supportive wife character. But I think her performance is really strong. And the there's a particular moment that I really loved her, which is, when he's giving the uh, I am a revolutionary speech and he mentions about how he's basically willing to die for the cause and you see the crowd erupt and there's a brief moment where she, you know, kind of takes in that information and, you know, looks at her stomach with her unborn unborn child and realizes what he's saying but still goes ahead and claps. Yeah. And I think that's, it's like such a small moment but it's so powerful and it is a great representation of all the wonderful character work that she's doing, even though the role itself, I think, is not that flushed out. But I think that her performance does a lot to really connect you with that character. And, and that was one of the moments that I felt was the strongest. And the other thing I want to mention is I really love the scene with Lowell Howery, the other <laughs> Get Out alum yeah. who appears yeah. <laughs> in this movie. Like, I, it's such, like... A small part and probably in the grand scheme of things maybe i don't even know if it's that necessary but it's so i was just so into that scene and i know that we mentioned that the music doesn't always work but that sting that happens when he shows him the badge yeah. at the end of it like jaw dropping like i, I just i'll, I'll oh, give you credit so that was the one moment yeah. where the music worked for me yeah. yep yeah. I'll, I'll i'll give you that <laughs> Yeah, I was going to mention that scene too, so I'm glad that you were. I'm glad that you were able to bring it up. Um, my final notes here, uh, very very simple. I love the line: "War is politics with bloodshed. Politics is war without bloodshed." Mm-hmm. Absolutely love that. And I love that there is an explanation as to what that phrase means as well. Martin Sheen saying over the phone, "Prison is a temporary solution." brought chills down my spine in a way that I could not believe, but it was also, once again, mustache twirling villain, and I I don't know, I keep going back and forth on the Martin Sheen inclusion in this because there are times where I think that it is effective and then times where I think it is just too obvious, and I... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all due respect to the other people on this call, but I really feel like those scenes are for the white people in the audience. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what I said, which, like, you know, that's not necessarily a great purpose of a movie, but it's definitely something that, you know, I and I'm sure a lot of people are going to take out of it for better or for worse. And I've done a pretty good job of, other than the Kelvin Harrison Jr. mentioned before, I've done a pretty good job of not mentioning the Trial of the Chicago 7 during this review because um, I feel like <laughs> a lot of people are taking that dig here. But when Travis Chicago 7 has a line of dialogue about the Academy Awards, and then when Mitchell says to O'Neill, either this guy deserves an Academy Award or he really believes this shit. I'm just like, yo, I'm like, stop giving me reason to compare this to Travis Chicago 7. God damn it. <laughs> Well, they also mentioned Bobby Seale in I know. Messiah as well. So and they're mentioning like, the trial and everything. And I was like, stop, stop. I don't want to have to compare the two. 
damn it. Because <laughs> I like Travel to Chicago 7, and I know that a lot of people don't. And it's, you know, once again, kind of propping it up for a very, very easy punch in the face. And, yeah, I'd rather just not get into that game. <laughs> so, uh, my grade here, I'm going with a soft 8 out of 10 on this one. Um, I have nitpicks, uh, but at the same time, the performances the craft of this movie uh, with especially the cinematography and the production design, as you mentioned before, and really just the overall message of this movie. This is a movie that I feel like I, I asked myself, had this come out not after the summer that we experienced this year, but before I had to ask myself, how powerful would this movie still be on its own? Because I do think that there's a lot of movies this year that have benefited a bit from that. But at the same time, I think that maybe over time, the message would still be just as resonant anyway, without some sort of a um, some sort some sort of a uh, spark to ignite the flame, as it were. So, in that regard, I, I think that it is still quite a very powerful, enraging, and thrilling movie to watch. And as we mentioned, it's very. Uh, economic in its storytelling. I mean, it's you know just barely over two hours long, if if that. So, it's a, it's I would recommend it to anyone, anyone out there to watch this movie for sure. So, eight out of ten for me, Cody. What about you? Same eight out of ten. I do think it's going to have a pretty great legacy. Um, yeah, I can see this being one people talk about for a while, especially as I'm, we're about to talk about if it gets undersold by the Oscars. Josh Parm. Uh, also eight out of ten. I think the movie is. Like that messiness that I talked about is what kind of keeps me from fully embracing it into something that's even higher in my grade. But still, while I'm watching it, I'm engaged. I think that it has a really great story to tell, an important one to tell, and it does so mostly effectively. So, yeah, an 8 out of 10 is where I'm going to land. Okay. Dan Bear. Yeah, I am also at an 8 out of 10. It is just, it's super duper entertaining. And that accounts for a lot with me tom o'brien it's unanimous eight out of ten wow uh, for me uh i just wish the uh, screenplay had one more draft in it okay uh to, just just to kind of uh, ask the question is this subplot necessary and uh i think it would have been a little more effective with a little bit of those trims but nonetheless the filmmaking is so spectacular and performances are really among the best of the year Okay, so Judas and the Black Messiah coming at the tail end of this year's awards season is currently nominated for a couple of different awards, but no Best Picture awards as of today. No SAG Ensemble, no Critics' Choice, no Golden Globe, and not shortlisted for BAFTA either. So it's not a good sign uh, for its Best Picture prospects. However, I'm seeing a lot of people mentioning comparisons to American Sniper, Phantom Thread, that it could be a late December, or in this case, late February release that just comes in at the right time and is able to kind of scooch on by past all that and get into the Best Picture conversation. Josh, I want to hear your thoughts on that aspect of it first from its award standpoint. Do you think Judas and the Black Messiah will get a Best Picture nomination? I do not think it is going to get a Best Picture nomination. The I think also the main difference between some of those other like late-breaking movies is that those were situations where those movies just were not seen at any earlier because they like weren't finished. And we're in a very different situation now where like yeah, they were saving this movie for the end of this season, but it was available for people to see. And I think that at this point it just seems like so many narratives of other movies have been established now that like, it's not impossible for it to break in, but I would honestly consider it very unlikely given the performance of the season so far. Cody, what do you think? Yeah, I, I have it fighting for the number 10 spot. My predictions between this and the father, the problem with Judas is I don't really see a path for it accumulating a lot of other nominations. I mean, Kaluuya is a guarantee um, I could see the cinematography maybe getting in, but that's about it, unfortunately. Uh, another thing that it has been nominated for, though, um, it has been nominated for the end credits song at the end. So 
Uh, curious, Dan Bear, do you agree with Cody? You think there are other nominations it could secure in order for it to get into the Best Picture uh, nomination field? Um, I definitely think it is fighting for a spot in Best Picture. I think it's fighting for spots everywhere except supporting actor. I think Daniel Galea is absolutely a lock and a serious threat to win. But I don't know that there's a place where it would show up and I would say, oh, well, if it got in here, then it's definitely in the Best Picture race. I mean, I guess cinematography, like if it got in there, that would definitely show a yeah. strength elsewhere that would make me say oh okay then this is a possibility this could really happen but I, any other place I, I just don't think that it has a much of a chance really I, I don't think it's script is going to even if it, it may show up at WGA but I don't I don't think it's going to go much beyond that um, production design and costume design are great, but I don't think either are very flashy. And this is a year with some very flashy movies in those categories. So I don't think those are happening either. And song, <laughs> I don't know what to do with best original song this year. Yeah. That category is just particularly random in terms of what they shortlisted. And yeah, I mean, it stands a good chance, but like there's so many end credit songs and mm-hmm. yeah. This, I don't There's know so many end credit songs with similar out. themes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Although I do like this song, swat- though. It's, I like the song, yeah, but you too, literally but... switch it with any of the other end credit songs in yeah. their movies, and they would seem equally appropriate. Yes. I forgot about the song, to be honest, when I was saying it's Prospects. I do think it is definitely getting in there. And I do think it's a pretty decent song. I really like the kind of throwbacky yeah. sound of it. Um, I don't think it's going to win there, though unfortunately no no it's it's not going to win i don't think so although i don't know judging by what might get nominated it might be my winner just based on the song itself because i really do like the song yeah i i i think man it's really tough because there was like a period of time where i was considering just a kaluuya nomination and nothing else you know because i tend to um whenever i'm doing my final 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 oscar predictions i tend to look at like what it what a film's maximum potential is and then i tend to take away and subtract because the oscars are always snubbing things that should get in elsewhere and stuff and it's very very rare that you see a movie actually max out its nomination potential so here it's like daniel kaluuya is a given he's going to get nominated in terms of him winning I think the film needs to be nominated for Best Picture before we have that conversation. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I would say so. Although, I also want to say, Daniel Kaluuya, as supporting actor, I want to call BS on that one. I do not think... (laughs) uh, He has scenes from his own perspective. You're you're right. Yeah, Yeah. this is a co-lead situation between him and Lakeith Stanfield. I think calling him a supporting actor is ridiculous. I... I... Okay, I think he is. Oh, I, I, I think it is very border because so many scenes are told from Lakeith's point of view compared to his. But he gets full sequences just from his perspective. I know, I know. Yeah. No, this is yeah. not a situation where it's like you see both of them, but most of the story is told from the Bill O'Neill perspective. No, you get full scenes with just each of those characters separately. Like I get why they're doing it, but I do not believe for one second that he is supporting in this movie. Right. The argument there is that it's, you know, Lakeith's character's story. He starts it and, uh, Fred Hampton comes into his life. Um, I am kind of okay with him being supporting. I'm okay with him being lead, but as I say a lot on this podcast, I don't really care about category fraud, so I'll just <laughs> stay out of this one. <laughs> I'm kind of glad he's in supporting in the sense that uh, Best Actor is so stacked. Uh, sure. I want to see him get another no- uh, nomination. I suspect, I mean, I, I think this has been ready, and I don't know why they did the February release unless they just wanted to premiere at Sundance. I think they were holding out for theaters. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think this would have benefited from a December release or an early January release just to get the ball rolling because it just seems a little late now. I will say this. The the Sundance move was 
brilliant. I always suspected that there was going to be one movie that was going to play at Sundance. And when it came very clear it was either going to be <laughs> this or Billie Holiday, I knew it had to be one of them. I, in the end, I predicted it was going to be Billie Holiday. But when this happened, I really thought that they uh, had done the right thing because the buzz out of Sundance when this movie's reactions dropped on social was enormous. I mean, it was very, very, very enthusiastic. Then it was, I thought, good timing because it came about right when all the nominations then started happening. But then it started to dwindle because it wasn't getting the Best Picture nominations. Kaluuya was getting nominated everywhere, but it wasn't being nominated for SAG Ensemble. It wasn't being nominated for Critics' Choice for Best Picture, which still shocks me. I mean, I yeah. I am just I I could not believe that Critics Choice did not go for Judas and the Black Messiah. I that's something I would have expected the Globes to do, not Critics Choice. And now mm-hmm. the release is actually happening this weekend, so the buzz is coming back again. This time from the actual people in the world that are not in the awards conversation or film critics, you know, actual people are watching it. So. Now it's just a question of how much buzz does that create and can Warner Brothers ride the wave towards a very, very last minute Hail Mary attempt at a Best Picture nomination. I think if it gets a PGA nomination, I would watch out for it to sneak in there in the end. But then you just got to look at its final nomination tally and ask yourself, okay, picture, supporting actor, cinematography and song? Boy. Is that is that the final tally? Like I think that's its best day. Yeah, and that doesn't feel like a really that feels like a very odd combination, right? Of like the types of nominations that a film would get with a corresponding best picture nomination. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a appropriate facsimile in the recent years. I'm having trouble. Yeah. So I, I think a more likely scenario and something that I might actually start predicting, and I'm, uh, it pains me to say this, unless if Sean Bobby gets in an ASC, I might just predict Kaluuya to be the film's only nomination. It's very possible. I mean, and I, I'd be stunned if it got a PGA nomination because uh, the PGA is much more news of the worldy than Judas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, I think it's got an outside shot if there are 10 nominees Probably not with nine. Definitely not with eight. Matt, you don't think it's definitely in for song? Uh, as as uh, Josh mentioned before, I think song is just so crazy this year with so many different types of possibilities that it would not be shocking to me if the song uh, missed. Sure. Because there's just so many different combinations of nominations you can get from those listed songs. I Remind me, did this movie make the AFI 10? I believe it did. I think it did. That, that's what I thought too, which makes me think that uh, a PGA nomination is maybe more possible than we think. Um, I, I don't know that it will happen, but anyone saying it's definitely not, I would go, yeah, I don't know about that. But even then, uh, the PGA get, uses a straight 10. So. I, I would look out for its guild showing. Yeah. You know, I would look out for how it does in the uh, crafts with the guilds. As well as obviously WGA, which is looking very likely that that's going to happen, as mentioned before. So it's it's borderline. <laughs> yeah, it's borderline on a lot of categories. And yeah. right now, I I feel like it is just going to be Kaluuya and the song. But you know, we'll have to wait and see what the guilds say about it. And and, and hear me out on this. You know, the post did get just best actress and best picture. So maybe. And yeah, but the post also did song. very well in like the earlier days of the season, though, you know, six Golden Globe nominations NBR winner for best picture like it like the post. Yeah, only got two nominations, but it was a presence throughout the season in pretty major categories. And yep. we are just not seeing that for Judas and the Black Messiah. Also, too, there are other mm. examples of that. Obviously, you know, Selma, a serious man. I'm just saying that, like, if it was going to squeak in at the very last minute and Kaluuya is a sure thing and everything else was on the bubble, that would not shock me. No, but it also wouldn't shock me if it didn't happen either because it is right on the line. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, like, is this a Selma situation? That's what I keep comparing it to in my head is Selma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, but Selma, again, was that was a situation where that movie came out late. But that's also because, like, that movie wasn't 
finished and time. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, when the first screening was basically like they hadn't even uh, done the final cut on that movie yet. So, like, this isn't the same situation. This movie was pretty much done, and they were just holding it for right now. Yeah. Yeah, the best I can hope for is, this is a weird comparison, but like a hell or high water where it gets picture, a performance, a craft or two. Yeah. Okay. Man. I feel like we just like sunk everyone's dreams into the bottom of the ocean just now that's listening to this. <laughs> Welcome to the MVP podcast. <laughs> where your Oscar hopes come to die. <laughs> we manage expectations over here. Yes, okay. we do. <laughs> we kill all dreams. That's right. <laughs> we kill them first so that you don't have to later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to our review of Judas and the Black Messiah here. Josh Parham, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. Cody Derricks? You can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram at CodyMonster91. Dan Bear? You can find me on Twitter at Dan on Film. Tom O'Brien? Well, please join me on Twitter at Thomas E. O'Brien. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Next Best Picture Podcast is proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. If you want to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, please feel free to do so. (laughs) Give us a comment, rate us five stars, let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.